Well, good evening, everyone present in the sanctuary tonight. And those of you following us online, I want to welcome you to tonight's service. I don't know, I'm going to ask for a strange, make a strange request. Can we sing a chorus before I pray? Um, don't let me fail you, Lord, or I need you more today. And we'll sing this chorus and join us as we sing it as a prayer from our hearts to the Lord. Father, if ever there was a time when we need you more than the years gone by, these are the days, Father, that we need you. There's so much evil bombarding us, Lord, or, and then our fallen nature together with the world, so much against us, Father, and that's why tonight we're asking you for your help. Lord, we need you your presence, your spirit, your genuine Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we need your spirit and that anointing that will break every yoke. We need for you to drive back the works of the devil from our lives, Father, and our midst. And give us grace as we continue this race, Father, to the finish end. Lord, tonight... I bring every child of God in this local church before you. Wherever they are, Lord, I pray even right now that you will give us a common mindset, a unity, Father, a purpose that's united, O oh God, 
touch our minds, that together we'll become lively stones that will make up this spiritual tabernacle that you can dwell in. Help us, each one of us, to realize how important our relationship with you is, Father. Give us that conviction and that contrition in our hearts that we can change, O oh God, from every fickleness and instability, Lord, and serve you with purpose. Tonight we pray for those that are not well in their bodies, Lord. We pray that you'll touch your people. Touch every one of your children tonight. Lord, those that are spiritually sick, we pray you'll revive us and touch our minds also. Tonight, Lord, in a special way, we remember our churches here in North America, the work in New York. Lord, whether it's Elmont or Westbury or any other part of the city, we pray you'll cover your people. Pray for the work, O oh God, in Connecticut and in Hartford, Lord, and wherever the work of God is preached in Connecticut, Brother Moses and Brother Gatinji and whatever they're doing, Father, we pray you'll be with them. Yes. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you will touch Brother Brintley and Sister Celeste. Yes. Pray that you'll touch Brother Glenn and strengthen his faith. Pray, O oh God, for Brother Feliz in, in, in his part of the country, Lord, at Montreal, that you'll be with him. Pray, Father, tonight for brother, brother, uh, the brothers in, the Haitian brothers, not only in, in New York, but in, in Haiti. Pray for work, O oh God, especially in North America. Men that are preaching this gospel and have struggles in life, we pray that you'd help your people. Raise up in our day, Lord, ministers that will spread the gospel. We'll not be afraid, O oh God, to stand and be sanctified from this world, Father, but you will touch their minds. We pray for Brother Eugene tonight, and Brother, brother uh, Lord, every one of these brothers, Haitian brothers, Lord, in, in New York and in New Jersey, Pray you'll be with them. Pray you'll help the work in Philadelphia that it might recover, Father. Tonight we remember Brother Goss in Keswick. We pray, Lord, for that you'll strengthen him as he reaches this good age. Lord, that you'll be with him. Lord, tonight we pray for every one of our churches around the world, for the work in India and in Africa and in England and in the Caribbean, Father. And wherever this gospel is preached, touch our hearts and guide your people, Father, we pray. We ask you to bless this service tonight, Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. Bless this worship, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please join us in the worship. Your wonderful name. Well, it's a prayer of our hearts that uh, we don't want to fail the Lord, and we fail Him every day. I fail Him every day, knowingly and unknowingly. And uh, there are times we like to blame the devil for our incompetence, and um, he does not fight back. He just let us go ahead and 
have a merry good old time. But we need God to help us. And scripture says it's not by human might, nor human strength, nor human wisdom, but by the Spirit of God. Tonight I want to do a little, something a little different in that there was a time when we used our Wednesday night service to communicate with each other. I would take my little, we had a Bible stand at that time, use the Bible stand as a pulpit, and I sit out in front of half the congregation. We used the half of the church, and everyone would sit on that side, and we would have a nice worship, and then questions, people are allowed to ask questions. Well, tonight I don't want to ask anyone if they have a question. I've got some questions sent to me online and uh, some concerns individuals have, and they're not critical questions. They're questions asked for someone that's hungry and wants more information. And so tonight I want to dedicate this service, and I would not be able to answer that come all the aspects of the questions asked. But one of the concerns is that uh, concerning the church that Jesus started and the church that was initiated on the day of Pentecost fully, that received power from God on the day of Pentecost, and uh, over the years what has become of the church. Uh, we want to concern ourselves with the very concept that the church is, was supposed to, de to prepare God's people for the kingdom. Paul made a statement in Ephesians, the, uh, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, and I want to turn to that one first because that is a scripture that just pop into my mind as being something that I can use first of all. And Paul says in chapter 5 of Ephesians and verse 23, he makes a statement like this. He says, verse 22, 21, he says, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, when we read the Bible, we must understand that every part of the Bible was written with a purpose in mind. There was a receiver for whatever was written or whatever was said, and there was a bottom line purpose for whether it's an epistle or it's a complete work of a, one of the prophets. For example, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, we are looking at a letter of exhortation uh, to this assembly that Paul did not really start. He did not start the church in Ephesus. Apollos started this church. Paul had to uproot some of the things Apollos had planted and replant some of these things. And sometimes it is absolutely necessary for a pastor to be wise enough to understand that not everything passed on to you might be correct. I might have something that is completely erroneous that my grandpa taught me or my religious leaders of the past taught me. But when I check the scriptures, it contradicts uh, this practice. I believe truth is progressive. 
And when I say truth is progressive, basic doctrines never change. The doctrine of hell, more light might be given unto it, but it would not change. The doctrine of the Godhead, more light and clarity might be given to it, but it never changes. The doctrine of baptisms, we might have also greater clarity and bringing it up to date with what we're doing, but some doctrines, especially theological, uh, theoretical doctrines, they don't change. Uh, they might change and take a slant when man gets in there and try to make it into an educational discussion. For example, I want to study God and I get up there and I want to study all the attributes of God. Why would I do that? Why don't I just accept God for what he is? God is love. The Father dwells in a light which no man can approach unto. Why do I want to find out where the light is and what to do? He already says, he dwells in a light which no man can approach unto, and the Father no man had seen nor can see. So, to understand the Father, there's something called faith that we must use. And that is a, there's a lot to be said like that, but sometimes it is necessary to uproot. And that is what Paul, uh, the Lord told Jeremiah, hold your finger in Ephesians, and turn back with me to the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah. When the Lord sends, sent this prophet in, he sent him to a nation that was already established as a nation. Israel was already established for years. And I, Jeremiah came here and it was... According to my Oxford Bible, the little margin that I'm looking at, it was like 625, 26 years before Christ. 620 something years before Christ. According to my Bible, Je Isaiah came before Jeremiah. And Isaiah, when we look at the first chapter, it is over 700 years before Christ. So Isaiah was almost a hundred years ahead of Jeremiah. Israel had a problem continuing faithfully to God. And not only Israel, the work of God has always been bombarded and undermined. And so not because I'm brought up in something means that everything I'm brought up in is correct. Traditions, uh, habits, and customs might be passed on to me that is completely not what God wants. So bear that in mind. And so when Isaiah, Jeremiah came, Isaiah had already called the people uh, that they were blind and full of iniquity. Was it any different in, in Jeremiah's days? If the people had repented a hundred years before Jeremiah and turned to God and they kept on serving God, Jeremiah did not need to come. The reason why Jeremiah came was because Isaiah's message did not have that everlasting or lasting effect on the people that they went back into serving other gods. So iniquity was not eliminated in the days of Isaiah and the people ended up and killed him according to tradition and according to history. They took the man and cut him in half. God's people did that. And so when Jeremiah came, 
There was all kinds of junk practices. They felt they were serving God. But there were practices and customs and, and, and things that they promoted that God never really allow, should, would never really allow. So the Lord told Jeremiah when he went, in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, the Lord says, Be not afraid, verse 8. Be not afraid of their faces. You got a message that will be strong. Be not afraid of the people's faces. Well, back there, they would have to go to the temple because they're Jews. Not like today. Gentiles don't like church attendance. It was a part of their religion to come to the temple. Uh, they, they found that attending their rituals and their ceremonies is important. The only people that don't like to come to church is the Gentiles and church attendants. They don't come. They put God on a back burner. That is why when, it re when all is over, God must return to Israel to build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. That is why Israel will hold the foundation of the kingdom of God. That is why Jesus had to be an Israelite and a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. And so us Gentiles, we have a little period here that we need to serve God and we got a difficulty serving God because God we need him to serve us it's like a it's like a convenience store churches become like a convenience store where when we need something we come to church we need a spiritual fix and so we come to church all right let's not get sidetracked here time is not going to wait on me and so the Lord said, said to Jer Jeremiah, he says, I called you, verse 5, before I knew thee, I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest out of your mom's womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And he comes down here, he says, be not afraid of their faces, verse 8. He says, verse 9, he says, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. That was such a beautiful thing. And I believe it was Jesus that was there in the days of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was arguing that he is not able to speak, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched his mouth. And he filled his mouth with a message that Israel at that time did not have. And the Lord raised up Isaiah Israel was in apostasy and iniquity reigned and he had to come and preach a gospel they needed to repent and turn to God. He preached that gospel. And here was Jeremiah. Here's what the Lord told Jeremiah. He says, see, verse 10, I've set thee, I've this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to do what? He says, you need to root out Every pagan custom, every pagan tradition, every pagan worldliness, he says, you need to root it out. Well, it's been there for many years. The tree is big. Then root it, find a way to root it out. Kill it from the roots. Well, the Lord said to Jeremiah, root out. I wonder what the Lord will tell us today. If he is to speak to a minister, I wonder what the Lord would say. Compromise. Don't change from past traditions. No, every age, God has to reach on in and cleanse his people afresh. 
And oftentimes when God raises up a minister, whether his name is Jesus, he came to his own and his own received him not. Jesus, the Son of God, himself came and they did not receive him. Why do I think they'll receive me? Why would a preacher feel like he can preach the truth and people would just, oh, accept it? No, you compromise the gospel, you'll have a following. You make the church into a social club, your church will grow numerically and financially. And so the Lord said to Jeremiah, root out and then pull down. Uh, get to the roots and then see the structure and pull them down and destroy it. Whether it's philosophy, whether it's tradition, whether it's customs, whether it's passed on by your ancestors, this was the Jewish people. They had things that needed to be pulled up, root up, pulled down, throw down, destroy, and before you can build. And that's what Paul did when he went to Ephesus. Apollos had planted things into the hearts of the people that when the apostle went, he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And he says, what? We don't know. What are you talking about, Holy Ghost? Did Apollos preach John's message? No, sir. John spoke about a Holy Ghost baptism. Apollos preached Apollos' message. John says, there is one that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to, to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Don't tell me Apollos preached John's message. He did not. Are you with me? See, John's message was repent and be baptized. Well, if you're a man like Apollos brought up in Alexandria, a very educated city, you wouldn't come and tell the people every day, repent and be baptized. You want to get some sort of an educational system brought in the church. And Apollos, it did not take him too long to let the root of bitterness that was in him, that was brought up in his spirit, uh, he surfaced it in order to help the few people. And that's not how you build a church. Apollos needed to die to the customs and tradition of, Alex, of Alexandria, that big city he was brought up in. And so when Paul went, he said to the people, have you received the baptism? They said, what? We don't know what's a baptism. Paul rebaptized every one of Apollos' disciples, rebaptized, and then God filled them with the Holy Ghost. There's no limit to God. And so the Lord told Jeremiah to do the same, same thing and then to build and then to plant. And so Ephesus had uh, they, the traditions and the customs and whatever Apollos taught the church, it had to be pulled out and eradicated. And then Paul built that church and the city did not want him. If Apollos did what Paul did, the city would not have wanted him either. But you have to compromise to stay in town. Compromise and stay in town. Become a Dale Carnegie, Gar Carnegie and learn how to win friends and use and influence people. Preachers should not be that. Men call of God must be different. And so when Paul is 
talking to the writing to the church at Ephesus here in chapter 5 he deals with a lot of situations with this church I told them from the very start that they need the eyes of their understanding to be enlightened in chapter 1 but there were problems in this church at Ephesus when they started little problems not major problems but little problems and he writes in chapter 1 and he says Okay, verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The saints in if Ephesus need their un- the eyes of their understanding enlightened. Now this was a letter not of correction, but more so of exhortation to a church that Apollos had started and Paul had replanted. A lot of times, a man of God and a congregation need to examine their lives and see if it matches the early church apostles and what they did. We need to examine our lives and see if the world has come on into the church and we serve the devil and we serve the world more than we serve God. Because we'll find out what Jesus is coming back for in a minute. And so Paul went on here in chapter 2. He says, And you had he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The Lord quickened these saints who were dead in trespasses and sins. My question, when did the Lord quicken them? In the policy, on the policy's ministry? Absolutely not. They got quickened when Paul baptized them, rebaptized them in water, and then the Holy Ghost fell in the 19th chapter of Acts, and they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that quickening from God. And so he said, You had he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world. Worldliness was a part of what the people were involved in, but Paul says, God has quickened you from that dead lifestyle and now you're alive to serve the Lord. All right? He goes on, you were under the prince of darkness, the powers of darkness, that is the devil. He says in chapter, and we're moving here, he says in chapter chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, and now we are built upon the foundation of the apostles. What foundation we are built on? The foundation that the church at Ephesus was built on was the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. One day I was in Brother Marlowe's church. And while I was in his church, um, I preached. And when I was done, his daughter came to me and she said to me, she gave me a note. This was maybe 25 years ago. 25 years ago, she gave me a little note. And she says, Brother Singh, here is something for you. And then she left and the dad says, you must be special because she don't normally come to anybody. When church is done, she bolts out. But she gave me a note. And I can't remember exactly what it says. I still have it on my desk. But it says, the past is history. The future is a mystery. But the present is why we call it the pre- a present. 
It's what God has given us to live in. And I thought about that because it was beautiful. The past is history. The future is a mystery. But the present is a present. And that's why we should enjoy the present that God has given to us. See, there is a past that we can't live in. We cannot live in the past. And we can aspire the future, but today is our day. We have to live for today. And we must understand that if you live in the past, you can't move on in God. We must appreciate the past. Don't burn the bridges we cross on, but appreciate where we're coming from. And if it's an evil bridge, burn it. If it's a sinful bridge, burn it. If it's a pagan bridge, burn it. But move on. Because today, we are standing on the foundation that those apostles and prophets give unto us. Now, when he says we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, is Apollos included here? I can, thank you, Sister Chandri, absolutely not. The atrophies is not included. Hymenaeus is not included. Um, Alexander the coppersmith is not included. Uh, these, uh, these individuals that oppose the work of God, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, none are included in this foundation. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here's the question. Is it possible that a part of our foundation has an element that should not be there? Anything contrary to what the apostles and prophets passed on to us, and Jesus being the chief cornerstone, should be found out and eliminated from the foundation that we're standing on. If the foundation is bad, the building will collapse. And we're talking about spiritual things here, not natural things. And so we're building upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So this building, spiritual building, the church, the spiritual building must have a right foundation. I remember when Brother Marlowe told me that foundations crack after a while and might need maintenance. Because a foundation might have a crack and muddy water seeps into the basement. Can't afford to have that. We have to examine our foundation ever so often. I know we have great men in my life. I have some great men I can look back to that was a part of my life. But I have to examine everything they passed on to me and see if there was a flaw in what they give me to build on. It is my God-given responsibility as a minister to examine everything passed on to me that's outside of Scripture. And even when Scripture is passed on to me, I must examine it because Paul says we don't handle the Word of God deceitfully. I cannot afford to handle the Word of God deceitfully. So we're, we're trying to get a lesson in here today. And so Paul went on in chapter 4 
In chapter 4, he makes a statement, most popular scripture of all times. He says, um, in chapter 4, you know, he gave gifts unto men for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. This is how the church is built on. He says, for the perfecting of the saints, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, back up a little, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that you walk worthy, worthy of the vocation, vocation, not vacation, vocation, wherewith you're called, and when you're walking worthy, there will be a lowliness, and a meekness, and a long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. When you see that coming on into the work, not a facade, not a put-on of um, a facade of love. No, it's real. When someone suffers, we all should suffer. When someone rejoices, we need to rejoice. And it is strange that sometimes our love ends when we hit the church door. When you see you gone from the church door, I don't know about you. Well, I'll tell you what. I think one of the best ways to communicate with the saints is to pray for them every day. And if you have a problem with anyone... Before you criticize them, ask yourself, did I talk to God about that flaw? Because if you do talk to God about an individual's problem, you would not gossip about them. You would not fret, you would not complain. So the unity of the faith was talked about here in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit of Christ is what we're talking about in verse 3. The unity of the Spirit in verse 3 is to bring us all in one mind. See, Paul said that in, to the, in Philippians. He says that we all put on the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. A mindset of Christ. He says, and when the mind of Christ is with you, there'll be all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another. And then he comes down here, he says, uh, the ministry gifts in verse 11, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, they're given for the perfecting of the saints, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long? Till we all come into the unity of the faith. Now, the purpose of God is to bring us into unity. When God sent his son, it was intended to save mankind. Why did they reject him? When God sent Isaiah, it was intended to bring the people back in relationship with God. Why did they kill him? Why was Jeremiah in a slime pit? Why the prophets were all rejected and killed by God's people? Because when you're trying to root up pet tradition and concepts, people love to hold on to these things of the past. No, you've got to move on. You can't live in the past and serve God in the present. Move on. Everybody say that. Yeah, we need to move on. Uh, forgetting the things which are behind. 
Reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the price of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So, the purpose of God is to allow the ministry to bring unity. Was it always successful? We'll find out in a few minutes. And so here in chapter, uh, chapter 4 and verse uh, 14, when the unity happens in the spirit unto the measure, how, how, how united, till we come into the unity of the faith, unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a complete man, unto the measure, the fullness, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what's the fullness of Christ? The fullness of Christ means... You've got the gifts, the fruit of the Spirit working in your life. The Spirit of Christ is not when you scream in church. The Spirit of Christ is more so when you're calm in church and something deep is working in your spirit. That you're giving up the Spirit of the world and taking on the Spirit of Christ. It brings a meekness and humility. That's what Paul was becoming when he says that I might know him. And become fellowship with his suffering. Because I have one purpose in mind. Alright? Still with me? Are you still with me? Yes. Alright, let's move on here. So in chapter 5, <clears throat> Paul is telling them. He says that you walk, be therefore followers of God as dear children. And he's telling them how to walk in, in, in Christ as beloved children. Uh, he says, what to avoid, verse 3, fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. Uh, verse 4, filthiness and foolish talking and jesting, all of this. Avoid, verse 5, for we know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous person who is an idolater shall enter into the kingdom of God. So we got a lot of things we have to give up. Did the church always give it up? We'll find out. Keep that in mind. And he goes on here, he says, Be not therefore partakers with them, verse 17. Don't walk like the children of disobedience. For you were sometimes in darkness. Church at Ephesus, you were in darkness. But now you are in light. Because God has translated you out of darkness. When you follow Alexandrian ways of life and the Greek mythology and the Greek customs and the pagan celebrations. He says, you are in darkness. You can sing about light, but if you're celebrating customs that belong to pagan religions and you get carried away with what the world is doing out here, you're a child of darkness. You can know all the doctrines right, and if your lifestyle goes contrary, you're a child of darkness. You can be the best preacher that they have in Gospel Assembly Church. And if you're practicing doc, uh, uh, customs and dogmas that's not uh, according to Scripture, according to Scripture, not what your papa passed on to you. What is in Scripture? We're not built on the foundation of our fathers. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Check your foundation. Verse chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Why did he give the himself for the church? Everyone here tonight, read loud with me here tonight. That he might 
Sanctify it is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. He says, Father, sanctify them. From what? From the world. Well, the world is very subtle. The world is made up of religion. Christian religion, a part of it. If the world is in the church, someone said, I look for the world and found it in the church. And when I look for the church, I found it in the world. Isn't that sad? Sad day, but that's a reality. Because I feel the world is in the church. And the church is not the building. The church is you and I. That we get, when we leave here and we walk out of here, only God knows what we get obsessed with. And so, he says that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The word of God preached must not, was not designed to entertain us, but it was designed to cleanse us. That is why I can't preach from a novel. That is why I can't preach from an encyclopedia. That's why I can't preach from a theological book. The word of God must have life. And I'm talking to you, and some of you would hear me, and some would be deaf like bats, spiritually speaking. Because you can hear it, but it never goes anywhere. What do you think, Jesus? Listen, I could be the most anointed preacher, fast and pray with all the anointing, but if you're blind and non-elect, I'll never save you. You can come and shake my hand and say, Brother Singh, wonderful job. But if you're not elect... And God hasn't touched your eyes. You'd hold on to the junk that the world offers. You need to be saved. Amen. You need to be saved. Yes. If you're not saved, you can't save your family. If you're not saved and understand what I'm talking about, don't even preach. Quit. Because you'll make individuals twofold children of hell. A lot of preachers preach to fulfill their own preaching lust. You got to preach to save people. That you might sanctify them and cleanse them with the washing of water, the Holy Spirit by the word preached. See, I'm preaching a word tonight. And unless the Spirit of God touches your mind... You would not be cleansed. You would want to hold on to the past. But the purpose of the church is to present unto Christ. He says, washing of water. Verse 27, that he might present to himself a glorious church. That sounds wonderful, isn't it? Jesus will present unto himself a glorious church. Which church we're talking about? Anglican church. What church we're talking about? Catholic church. Maybe church of the Nazarene. Maybe the Baptists. Which church we're talking about? Which church are we talking about? See which one? Gospel assembly, right? We're talking about gospel assembly. No, sir. We're talking about the church, that mysterious element that no matter which, where you are, 
if you're a part of what God is working with, you're a part of the church. Not because you put a signboard out there and put a name, it means you're the church. You can put a biggest signboard bigger than the church, and you're not the church. Because when you look at history, Christ cannot present to himself a glorious church if the church goes into hypocrisy and into apostasy. And that's what happened in the early church. Jesus told a parable. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 16, I got 10 minutes, maybe 15, just follow me here tonight. Uh, in Matthew the 16th chapter, and everybody knows this scripture, uh, Jesus told Peter, he says at verse 18, he says, Thou art to Peter, and upon this rock, the revelation that God touched Peter, he says, I will build my church. Jesus said, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> well, there might be a hundred people sitting in a congregation and just five belong to the church. There might be 10,000 people in a fellowship and only 200 are a part of the church. Because the gate has always been straight and the way narrow and few there be that find it. If Israel, God's own people, backslid and was full of iniquity ever so often, what makes you think we are infallible? Even poor Mr. Pope is not infallible. Fallen nature is never infallible. And so, when Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that's a wonderful statement. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, he says in verse 24, he says he put a, not a parable forth and said, the kingdom is like unto a man who sowed good seed. That's Jesus sowing good seed in the field. But while men slept, when true men of God died and left the scene, and apostate fathers took over. You see, I read history, I study a little bit of history, and I remember one time I had a debate with some individuals concerning the Godhead, and one of these days I'll just preach a message on the Godhead. And when I did that, I did six or seven pages prepared to go in for this debate. They invited me. When I went in, there was like four, Brother Sam and I went in, there were four bishops sitting there wanting to quiz this little man about the Godhead because they had all these books behind them. And they were telling about the early church fathers. That's not Paul and Peter. That's Ignatius and other men that came after the early church. And they were telling you about the early church fathers and what they taught. I said, you know, excuse me. I believe in arguing doctrine or discussing doctrine by what this says. Not what Ignatius or whoever else says, whatever. And so they got a little upset. And they said, okay, here is what we do. You go ahead and talk about your doctrines. I got six pages I give them. Do you know, I went, for every one doctrine, scripture you have on the Trinity, I have 25 to 30 that condemns that. For every one scripture you have on the, God, on the oneness doctrine, I'll have 30, 40 scriptures that proves otherwise. 
Sometimes you're talking to man and he says, you know, um, uh, when you look at Genesis, the word that describes God is plurality. I said, you're teaching my doctrine? He says, no. I'm trying to show you the three in one. I said, no, it shows plurality. He didn't say three in one. And it's man, that's your friend. Yeah, he was arguing with me. And you don't want to embarrass him because he's telling me what my doctrine says. He says, but there is one God, and I said, one God and Father of all, and one Lord Jesus Christ. How many? When the Father said unto the Son, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Who is that? When the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. How many people were talking about? So when we're looking at scriptures like this, Jesus said, when men slept, an enemy came and sowed the field down with tares. It was sown with tares. When we look at the early church that started in the day of Pentecost, just a few years after Pentecost, the churches start to go to hell. Just a few more scriptures. I'm turning now to, uh, to the back part of your Bible. Uh, last book, second to last book, Jude was writing here. Jude was the brother of Jesus. He never served Jesus too much when Jesus was on the earth, but when Jesus died after the resurrection, Jude became a disciple. And Jude said here, he said in the, in the little epistle of Jude, he says, Beloved, verse 3, he says, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend, fight for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. By the time Jude started, which was 86 to 6, men were coming in. He says, for there certain men crept in unawares who were before ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of God into loose living. We've got that today all over the world. Not only in Jude's day. Back up to John. 1 John chapter 4. John says, Beloved, for chapter 4 verse 1, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirit whether they are of God, because many false prophets are already gone out into the world. Hereby know we the spirit of God. He says, already, this was eighty ninety. And the world was already full of false prophets. We're saying, do you believe in the restoration of the church? No. I just made a lot of enemies. I don't believe in a restored church. When I look at Revelation, I believe in an empowered church. The church that happened on the day of Pentecost, God's not going to do that back. God is going to do a different work. He's going to prepare the temple, measure the temple, measure the altar, measure them that worship therein, and then he empowers the church. We're not duplicating the day of Pentecost. That fizzled out and went under. He's going to do a different day of Pentecost. So instead of me saying restore to what? What it was? The devil will destroy it again. It's not going to be restored to what it was. It'll be empowered to become more powerful than what it was in the, in the, in the Acts chapter 2. It'll become powerful 
but in the, the, the witness, the church will prophesy in sackcloth. No one is riding high and manifesting an arrogance. And John says, in AD 90, false prophets were filling all the world. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24? So what happened to this glorious church? Well, the glorious church is not a congregation. The glorious church is God prepares one individual at a time and laid him aside. And Paul was laid aside to become a part of that glorious church in the resurrection. Stephen laid aside to become a part of that glorious church in the resurrection. I do not believe in this world there's going to be a congregation full of glorious people. We will fight and battle with the devil and be persecuted for a long time before the Lord comes. And history, Bible history, not regular church history, Bible history maintains the fact that everything God starts started the devil successfully undermined. And today when God raises up ministers, they must be able to uproot. They must be able to pull down. They must be able to throw down and destroy, destroy before they build. Let's turn maybe one last scripture in Galatians, the, uh, the first chapter of Galatians. And this is such a beautiful uh, epistle Paul wrote to, a, to a, a region that was already spiritually apostate. See, one of the problems we've got, we like to pick a verse of scripture and make a script history out of it. Now, you've got to read the letter and find out who Paul is writing it to. When Jesus told the disciples, go not to the way of the Gentiles, he was telling that to, to 12 men in that period of time, not us. We're Gentiles. We need to go to the Gentiles. You understand what I'm saying? When Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia, here's what he tells them. First of all, he says, grace be unto you, verse 3, and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus, who gave himself, Jesus gave himself for two basic reasons here. First, for that he might deliver us from our sins, that he might save us from our sins and deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. God wants to save us from what we like to hobnob with. This world, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If a man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This was AD 50, when Paul was writing. Paul was converted maybe about uh, four years. What, when was Paul converted? Uh, give me one minute here, I'll tell you. Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. It was about, tell me how many years would this be? It was about AD 34. And uh, 34, 44, 16 years. 16 years after his conversion, after he had built a church and preached to the people, they were backsliding. And he says, he says, I marvel, verse 6. I marvel. I'm in awe. 
I'm flabbergasted that the Holy Ghost is moving so strong in your church. Well, they thought it was, but Paul did not. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. Who was that person that called him into the grace of Christ? Anybody? Paul. Paul called him into the grace of Christ. He says, unto another gospel. You see, these people were twisting the gospel, twisting scripture. They were still in church. But all the churches of Galatia was backslidden. And so Paul ended up and says, he says, he says, but there, he says, which is not another. Verse 7, but there be some preachers that will trouble you and will pervert the gospel of Christ. We're not talking about traditions here. We're talking about the pure gospel that Paul planted. The people were perverting it. And so today, is Christ building a church? Yes. How he's building the church is not no big movement. He's building the church one saint at a time. And when he lays down Steve, when he laid down Stephen, that's another one to be a part of that glorious resurrection. These all died in faith. Some were killed by martyrdom. Some were stoned. Some died of old age. Whatever it was. His people have been laid down to rest. And there's coming a time when the Lord will say. Thy dead men shall live. Israel your dead men shall live. And together with my dead body. Those that are dead in Christ. They'll come alive and they'll receive life and enter into the kingdom. The Lord's purpose is to present to himself a glorious church. When? At the resurrection. Not now. And so I wish we had more time tonight, but that's it. Uh, we'll kick this on further on, maybe on the weekend. But we need to understand some of these things before the age comes to an end. Every church that God started apostatized like every move God made in Israel went into apostasy. But there were always those that were sincere. When Israel was in darkness and Jesus came, there was a man called Simeon whose heart was touched by the Holy Ghost. There was a priest called Zacharias who lived perfectly in the sight of God. But the majority of the movement was in apostasy. Sometimes the majority of a movement is an apostasy, but God must select the elect, isolate you, select you, choose you out of the bunch, and prepare your soul. We cannot always follow the rest of the sheep. We must follow the Lord whithersoever he leave. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, Jesus said, and follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Another night in your house, Lord, we pray that these words we have heard will challenge our lives to understand from history, biblical history, that everything you started, Lord, the devil moved on in. But I'm glad for the hope that you're presenting saints unto yourself. Mentally, Lord, we can understand the change. And we're hoping that one day we'd be qualified to be laid down and await that resurrection. Touch our minds. Touch the eyes of our understanding. Help the work of God today to move out of an apostasy 
into your marvelous light and truth. Help us not to be overcome by darkness, Father, but to be delivered from the power of darkness. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen and amen.